Welcome to Pastor Potluck. I'm Court Green. And I'm Peter Constantian. And today we are coming to you from the same office that we normally come to you from, but we are coming from you out of the book of Isaiah. One of the lectionary texts this week is Isaiah 6, 1 through 8. And most of us are somewhat familiar with this. It's fantastic. It's got the stuff flying around covering its head. Isaiah is coming to us from the throne room of God. Sure. From a vision of the throne room yes. of God. So we, we're, we're used to it. We've heard it. I don't know that you really can get used to this. But we, we've heard it. Most Christians have heard the story. And yet, if you look at it closely, it, it, it sometimes, if you can get past all the, I don't want to say weird, but weird imagery, and and look at what it's telling us, and the reaction that Isaiah has to God, we can see ourselves in it. And so, is it okay with you if I just start reading and then we start talking? Well, I want to give a musical reference. Do you now? So many people in my church are familiar with the song, Here I Am, Lord. Mm-hmm. It's uh, It really pulls on the heartstrings. Are you going to sing it for us? Here I am, Lord. Is it I, Lord, I have heard you calling in the night? Oh, beautiful. Thank you. Got a tear in my eye. And those words, the lyrics there, I think, are coming from this passage. So even if you're not familiar with the passage itself, you may be familiar with that sense of calling and being um, in response to God and saying, Here am I, send me. All right. So uh, there's another old music reference um early christian rock band audio adrenaline well um here am i i am yours send me okay anyway uh so i'm gonna read it and i am gonna keep the the first few words that we talked about maybe leaving out but i'm gonna i'm gonna keep those in there and we'll go from there isaiah 6 1 through 8 in the year that king uzziah died I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphs were in attendance above him. Each had six wings. With two they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The pivots on the threshold shook at the voices of those who called, and the house filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphs flew to me, holding a live coal that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. The seraph touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed and your sin is blotted out. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. And that's it. Wow. Powerful imagery there. Yes, very much so. Let's talk about some of those images. So first of all, I, I, you ever just read it and like try to imagine it as it's saying the stuff it's saying? It starts to get weird real quick. Yeah, yeah. So real quick, uh, it starts for me with the robes, right? I can, I mean, I guess that's the first thing we really see. 
other than high and lofty. The edges of his robe filled the temple. So my first thought, mm-hmm. how small is that temple? <laughs> or how big is that robe? How do you move in a robe that big? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, and maybe he, he, I don't like saying he for God, but that's what it says. Yeah, we're maybe God the text is uh, it's just so big. Yeah. God's like crammed into the temple <laughs> and the robes fill the whole thing. This is what my mind does. Yeah. We were talking earlier about Revelation. And when I read it, it's the same thing. Daniel, same thing. Oh, I, 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 I have a friend who I want to be on the show, but she hasn't agreed to do so yet. But she's a, a uh, religious education teacher at Gardner-Webb in the undergrad. And what she does when she does a Revelation class, and she could do the same thing here, is she has people draw Mm-hmm. As they read what they see, yeah, and then she just laughs her rear end off as she as they turn it, not making fun of them, but because when we see we see these things differently in our minds. Mm-hmm. So yeah, first for me it's the robes. How big is God? How small is the temple? Those are the first things that come into my mind. My next thing that you notice is uh, these crazy winged creatures with six wings. Mm-hmm. Two veiling their faces, two veiling their feet, two flying about, shouting at each other. What's what? What? What do you see in your mind? What do they look like? Well, it's hard to it's hard to tell. I mean, I have seen artistic depictions of these creatures. I mean, six winged angels, but then again, like when they've got two wings over their face and two wings over their feet. And then just two wings flapping around. There's not much left to see. Yeah. Except for wings. Especially if you think about the... I feel like I see grasshoppers, maybe. Or well, that's what I was going to say. Do they have to be angels? Could mm. it be like an insect? I was actually thinking about uh, ants and beetles. You know, you got the four-wing be- beetles. Mm-hmm. And maybe just add some more wings on there. Mm-hmm. So that That's what I worry about. When I love art. Yeah. But I don't want to let an artist steal my imagination. Yeah. So I I, I try to imagine it first, and then then yeah. then go to the uh, classic yep. artistic renderings. This may be sacrilegious, but some cockroaches fly too. That's true. And they have lots of wings, and yeah. they look they look super gross. Why is that sacrilegious? Didn't God create those cockroaches? I guess so. Yeah. Um. So do we want to get into the euphemism of feet? I don't know about the feet thing, so you can tell me about that. Well, many scholars, I don't think it's a majority, but quite an, a, at least a significant number of, of scholars mention the fact that the Bible never mentions genitalia. Hmm. And so often they'll use euphemisms. So when it says two covered their faces and with two they cover their feet, it might be saying that they're using those two wings for modesty and hiding their gonads um, mm-hmm. as opposed to their actual feet. Do angels have reproductive organs? That's what I was going with this. Okay. So maybe, if that's the case, yeah. then maybe they do. Well, okay, so I see, uh, in all seriousness, I see some parallels here that I really admire between the edges of God's robe filling the temple and the, the song or the shouting that's, that's going on where it says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of uh, heavenly forces. All the earth is filled with God's glory. And so I like that, that symmetry between the temple being filled with God's robes and the earth being filled with God's glory. It seems like there's a connection there to me. 
I agree, and I think the the connection is completeness. Mm-hmm. And, and if you if you make that personal, one could imagine if we were it, just like as the Earth is e- equals the temple in that comparison, perhaps we as God's children are also filled with God's presence mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. So we pivot in verse four, uh, and all of a sudden there seems to be an earthquake. Uh, not really an earthquake, but the the voices are calling very loudly, shaking the thresholds, and the house fills with smoke. And mm-hmm. so now Isaiah's attention has been drawn to whatever this is it is that's going on. He's he's it, maybe he thinks he's about to get smote. Maybe and smoten, smitten, but whatever it is, it gives his attention. It seems like fear seizes him. Mm-hmm. And his response is not what many of us see as our response to God, which is, hey, Daddy, like the most familiar thing ever. Hmm. It's humility. It's intense humility, unworthiness, which is something that tragically we are missing in the church of today. We think that God is our chum, and there's there's no reverence for God. Hmm. And I, I think that God wants us to be close and to build a relationship but reverence has to has to be a part of it. Today, our our guest, who's not going to be saying anything, I hope, is is Gideon, my son. And one of the things that I want from him is to be loved, and him to know that I love him and know that he can be close to me. But I also want him to respect me. And sadly, a lot of times we lose. Like today, uh, we get in the car, we come to. That was him laughing. We get in the car, we come to my office because. His, his mother has to work intensely on something today so she can't be with him today anyway and we get here and he doesn't have his iPad which is what gets me through having him in his office so he, in my office so we can watch YouTube and I said okay well where's your stuff so we can you know plug it up and all that he goes you're supposed to get that well no I'm not I don't work for you and so there, there I want him to love me and I want him to know that I love him but there has to be some respect and we've lost that but I think an appropriate response to God's presence in verse 5 is to realize how unclean, to use Isaiah's word, Mm -hmm. we are in comparison to God. How low we are in comparison to the greatness of God. How incapable we are in comparison to the capability of God, which is endless. And we see that in those first three words, woe is me. And I think we've lost that. Hmm. Now, I think God wants us to be capable, but not because we are great, but because a great God works through us, which I think it alludes to later on. Have you ever trembled um, at the thought of God or thought of God's majesty? Yes. And it's, it's, a, it's an awe-inspiring fear, feeling. It's not one-on-one all the time. Right. But yeah. it, it's one that I'm glad I've had. It's definitely something that I have experienced, not not often, not regularly, but sometimes when something happens and I just can't explain it for any other reason other than that that God is working, whether good, I guess mostly it's been something that's good or something that uh, that kind of goes along with what I know my calling is, but something that I've been 
avoiding or afraid of, but then it just hits me in the face. Yeah, see, the hits me in the face part I can I can identify with. It's it's usually when I've experienced that something that's that I didn't anticipate because it's so far out of the realm of what I consider, you know, my lane. Mm-hmm. So it's usually something that just comes out of nowhere, like a a rogue a rogue wave of God's capability doing something I couldn't do, mm-hmm. and. Man, it's, it's the response is, number one, intense humility. Number two, being awestruck. Uh, and then later, as it washes over you, thankfulness that, you, that I was able to witness it. Mm-hmm. At least that in my experience. Yeah. Yeah, recently, I, th- I think it's been uh, f- people that I've been longing to meet in the community, or even if I didn't know them, but just... People who are committed to um, the same kind of work that I'm committed to, and then just meeting them out of the blue, and mm-hmm. like all of a sudden having a really good relationship, and like wow, there's actually uh, opportunities to to move forward on this vision that I had, but I didn't know what to do with, and that just feels like God's presence and God's direction, and so I tremble at that sometimes. So look at a a side road into another book. Last night we covered uh, in Acts, we did 8 and 9. And in Acts 8, Philip, who was my favorite character in Acts, uh, other than Jesus, I guess I'd say that. But earthly characters, Philip's my favorite. Watch and out, that was, her, that was almost heretical right there. <laughs> okay, go ahead. I embrace the heresy. Let's, let's talk about Philip. Really quickly. So he has been forced out of Jerusalem, mm-hmm. and he takes Jesus with him and the spirit and and he can't shut up about it and the movement spreads and that's great and then the spirit leads him back down through Jerusalem towards Gaza and he encounters this Ethiopian guy mm-hmm. and not only does he encounter him but he happens to be reading well Isaiah which we're in today the prophet Isaiah yeah. and happens to have a question and if only I had a Jew around to explain to, to me what this means hmm. And his question is, who are they talking about? So it, it makes me think of what you were talking about, how you encounter people that you had no idea that they were interested in or working on the same kind of things as you are, and suddenly they're right in your lap. And that's what the Spirit's been doing for ages, mm-hmm. certainly since Philip, yeah. perhaps before. So we'll go down that side road to just offer some Scripture cred to the experience that you were talking about there. But getting back to Isaiah... He's, he sees this incredible thing, and his response is an excuse, almost. It's very Moses at the burning at the bush that's not burning-like, okay? is woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. I have a problem, and it's my ability to communicate. It's not the same exact as Moses, but it brings us to the lips. Woe is me, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. I live among, among a people of unclean lips, yet my eyes have seen the king the lord of hosts i like my translation it said this is well this is the common english bible it says mourn for me i am ruined i'm a man of unclean lips this guy thinks he's gonna die because of what he's seen yeah because that's what he's probably been told all his life if you right. see the glory of god you can't handle it and right because we go we are unclean and how can we see some the the 
the being, the the pure being of God, and not not perish. Mm-hmm. And not only is he speaking for himself, he's speaking of all his people, whoever that is, mm-hmm. as well. So he has that reaction. He encounters God in all God's glory. But then he's in, he's uh, consoled, I guess, by one of the winged creatures who flies to him. Be they angels or grasshoppers, cockroaches, yeah. whatever. We're not making any determinations here. Whatever they are, they can manipulate objects because as he flies, he's holding a live coal that's mm-hmm. been taken from the altar. And you wonder why they need an altar, but they have one. And, well, I guess because they're in a temple. And so you take this this object from an, from an altar that's, suppo- that's supposed to be used to worship this God that you're so terrified of. Mm-hmm. Aside, or a quick note, in Revelation, the altar of incense represents the prayers of the uh, of the martyrs. Okay. So, we don't know what this altar signifies here in Isaiah. We don't know um, what the altar is being used for, but except that it's altars are usually used in worship. Uh, so it's a holy object. This is based on nothing but a hunch. But because of what he, the seraph uses it for, I happen to think that it could be an altar used for sin offerings. Hmm. Because he's about to clean, cleanse him of his sinful lips. Anyway, so the thing comes over, holds a live coal that's taken from that, and touches him and says okay now you're good touches his lips with the coal yeah which probably doesn't feel great and says your guilt has departed your sin is removed and uh so yesterday in our lectionary group we were talking about how uh, perhaps this is a way for isaiah to then carry that power of prophecy but also the 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 power to um to remove guilt or remove sin from his people. I don't know if I would go that far, but uh, he certainly mentions that he's a person of unclean lips living among a people of unclean lips. And uh, the question was there, well, so now that Isaiah's lips have been uh, cleansed, his sin has been removed, is that part of his ministry? I would think so, but that's reading ahead. Yeah. But his mouth is cleansed, and then the next scene you get is God putting words where? In his mouth. In his mouth. That has now been cleansed for that purpose. Mm -hmm. I think the promise here is that when God calls us to do things, even if they're things that we don't think we are capable of doing, because woe is me, Mm -hmm. then God also prepares us for the well, at least makes us capable of doing them. Mm-hmm. It may not look like the success we think it should be. It may not be look. It be like, well, I want my church to be full. Mm. It may be something totally different. Yeah. Um, this this uh, this passage, just in general, verse one through eight, uh, is is how Isaiah establishes authority for the prophecies that he's going to. Provide. In fact, I think some 
scholars have said that this might have been the beginning of the book of Isaiah mm-hmm. because it was important for prophets to establish their authority. You know, by whose authority do you speak was a question that Jesus was asked mm-hmm. over and over again because they considered him to be a prophet. Yeah, they, Peter got the same one in Acts. Yeah, Right, so, uh, so he's establishing his authority here um, for the message that he will give. And we know Isaiah is a very long book many chapters but it was important for near the beginning here for there to be this encounter so that we could trust that the words coming out of his mouth were god ordained so he we've established him we we see that that he is he was not worthy because he's a human but he was made worthy Mm -hmm. uh worthy to the task at least and his response, he gets really excited. Well, let's, let's not skip. But a voice comes out. It's the vo- voice of the Lord. doesn't say that he sees the Lord talking. just hears the voice of the Lord saying, mm-hmm. Whom shall I send? Which seems to be a rhetorical question. And who will go for us? And his response is that he gets all excited. There's an exclamation point in the translation I'm using. And he says, Here am I. Send me. Hmm. And he's told, go and say this to my people, which I didn't read. So before we go go on, um, I wonder, do we, one question that comes up with this authority thing is, do we in, today require some sort of, uh, you know, story or, or whatever to... To evaluate someone's authority to speak is that something that we still see today? Uh, in my experience, with search committee pulpit committees, mm-hmm. I don't know what they're called in the Methodist Church. I'm sure there's an acronym for committee it. on nominations. There you go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a different thing in our church. That's putting people in on different committees in our church. Mm. Anyway, so one of the things that a lot of Baptist pulpit committees are looking for is your quote unquote burning bush moment. Mm. How do I know as a committee member that you as a potential pastor are really called? Mm. I want to see lightning and smoke and thunder and, mm-hmm. and these kinds of things. And so I think the answer is yes. Mm-hmm. For many people, they want to know I can believe you because yeah, but the irony is they want an unbelievable story mm. to show you that they can show them that they can believe you. Mm. And so I, I don't know, I'm a little conflicted by that. Not all pulpit committee persons are like that. I, I get that. And frankly, it's becoming less and less of a thing because I think more people have learned that God does in fact have a still small voice as well. Mm. And so they don't necessarily need the shocking. But I think people do want some kind of, of credibility-establishing moment mm-hmm. where they can say, okay, I can trust what this guy or gal says mm-hmm. because I know from that moment forward God was directing them. Yeah, I don't know that that's an unfair expectation, mm-hmm. but it kind of puts us in the God seat because we are kind of saying, well... Will only listen if they have this thing. Thus, God must always operate in that way. 
That's what I don't like about it. Yeah, and there's a, there's a sense at which if you don't have a story like this, that you're somehow not credible, or that somehow God is not leading you. Mm-hmm. Which, even, you know, now that I'm a pastor, and I've had my call story, and I can share that, and have definitely been asked to share that as part of my journey to becoming a pastor. But looking back, even at times in my life where I would have called myself an atheist, or I would have said that I wasn't going to church and I had good reasons for why I wasn't, mm-hmm. uh, I could still see that God was directing my steps and God was speaking to me in that time. And so I guess the, before we move on, I want to just say that if you don't feel like you have a call story, or the if you're quoted, yeah, air quoted call story, if you don't feel like you have a vision of the heavenly throne room, like Isaiah does, something just incredible to tell people about why you feel God is leading you, that's okay. That's okay, because God doesn't uh, need to shake everyone by the shoulders Mm -hmm. in order to get their attention. Good for you if you didn't need that kind of... (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's what I was thinking about this, and, and have been for a long time. Okay, yes, God did that for Moses. That's why we call it the burning bush moment. And for Isaiah. But... Had Moses been paying attention, God wouldn't have needed to. Right. And, you know, God is calling someone who doesn't know God. Mm. We Moses is such a hero of our faith, we forget that he was not raised by his people in the story and really knew nothing of God. Mm-hmm. He's like, okay, stranger, how's it going? Why is the, isn't this bush, bush burning? Oh, take off my shoes? Uh, and so it's, it's, it's really... You know, we're asking someone to lead our faith community and, and demanding that they give this story, but shouldn't we be wouldn't shouldn't we be satisfied with? Well, I've always been close to God. Mm. It didn't take that kind of a thing to shake me uh, into paying attention. And so, I, I think something should be. I think about my wife. She's always been very very close to God. I I suppose I take her word for that. And I certainly know that since I've known her, she's been very very in tune to God spiritually. Um, spiritually awake is what I like to call it, where I, I'm often not. Hmm. I'm often spiritually asleep, and God needs to wake me up every now and then. So I, I would think that her without that burning bush moment or Isaiah story is more impressive to me hmm. than had she had one. Well, let's take a look at where the calling leads. And uh, we know that uh, the calling is, uh, once we respond to God's calling, we don't really have much say afterwards i mean if we're really trying to follow god's will and not our own we kind of have to give ourselves over to the direction god wants us to take and uh, when i was uh, when i was pursuing my calling and sort of testing the waters there i'd shared my call story with my congregation and they sent me to a discernment retreat which is a three-day retreat that starts a process of meeting with a small group of other people who are discerning their calling And when we got to this three-day retreat, they opened us up to chapter 6 of Isaiah, and they read these first eight verses, ending with, The Lord's voice said, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. So we're all excited. We're all excited. And they're saying, does anyone feel like Isaiah here? And we all raised their hand. Yeah, yes. we're going to change the world. Yes, Lord, send me. And, he, and then they said, 
Well, we're going to read the rest of the chapter, and I want to know what you think about it. So we're going to do that for you, too. You want me to read it? You can read it. You can read it. Just so, verse 9 through the end of chapter 6. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep listening, but do not comprehend. Keep looking, but do not understand. Make the mind of this people dull, and stop their ears, and shut their eyes, so that they may not look with their eyes, and listen with their ears, and comprehend with their minds, and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste, without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is utterly desolate, until the Lord sends everyone far away, and vast is the emptiness in the midst of the land. Even if a tenth part remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains standing when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Wow. So somehow that song that we sing doesn't have a line in it like, I the Lord of sea and sky, I have made their eyes go blind. No. Kind of rhymes. <laughs> kind of rhymes. I dig it. But that's not in there, you know. No, it's not. It, it doesn't. So this is a weird calling. Well, it, it's, it, it's not. No. Not when you couple it with reality. It is mm. weird compared to our expectations. Yeah. Because I, I have been in moments like you and the other, I don't know if they're Methodists or not, but the other people that were with you at that retreat mm-hmm. who raised their hand and were excited and we want to go change the world and do great and we know that God's going to use us and the people will hear God speaking through us and they will respond and they will want to be better. And far too often, oh my goodness, especially during the pandemic when I was preaching to a camera, mm-hmm. but... Far too often, I see verses 9 through 13. Mm-hmm. When when I get done speaking or whatever it is I'm doing, and i got to wonder, uh, has something made the mind of these people dull and their ears are not hearing me and their eyes are not seeing me? Right. More importantly, are they not hearing or seeing God through me? Right. Or am I just not doing the job right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get very self-conscious, self-conscious about... When it seems like the message that I thought God had given me to say just doesn't seem to click with anybody. Yeah. You know, they say that, you know, a sermon is never going to connect with 100%. But that maybe, and maybe even like only 30% of people really get it on a given Sunday. You start to wonder. And that's okay. But sometimes I feel like I'm more like 5%. Yeah. You wonder, (laughs) would I be thrilled to have 30%? Mm. Yeah. God. And so, I mean, this is a pretty so this is a pretty terrible call, as far as I can say, like from a, from an outsider's perspective here. I mean, God says to this to this servant who who has just been shown the throne room, whose sins have just been removed. This is what you're going to do. You're going to go and speak to this people, but they're not going to listen to you. Yep. You're going to. Uh, you're, and, and in fact, I'm going to use you to make the minds of this people dull, to make their ears deaf, to make their eyes blind, so that their eyes can't see and their ears can't hear and they can't understand with their minds. And and he has a problem with that. He comes back to the God and says, well, how long, O oh Lord? <laughs> kind of like, 
well, when does my when does the good part of my calling come? Yeah. Is, is this permanent? Yeah. How long am I grounded, Mom? Yeah. Uh, but God just keeps going until cities lie in ruin with no one living in them, um, until there are houses, w- until there are houses without people, and the land is left devastated. Until the Lord will send people far away. The la- I mean, and we know based on the timeline of Isaiah that all of this did come to pass. Mm-hmm. Isaiah is prophesying in the days before the Babylonian exile. Is that correct? Uh, Syrian, right? Syrian exile. And um, and so all of this came to pass. It doesn't make it good news to for for anyone to hear it, even if it is the truth. Um, so it's it's a calling that not many of us would take if if we got the calling before we got the call, or if we got the uh, direction before we got the invitation. Uh, and yet this is what Isaiah is appointed to. And I guess we have to wonder, you know, maybe some of us. Uh, pastors or anybody who's called, we all have a calling, can be appointed to something that may not seem fun, but it is God's will for us to be part of it. So let's think about contextualization. Yeah. So let's put this in a modern day call story. And let's imagine that in the life of this call, we are well into 9 through 13. Mm-hmm. How long does this pastor last? Mm. Because... I'm, let, let's forget about the fact that God is telling you you're going to make them be like this. Mm-hmm. We don't know if he's allowed to let them in on the plan. Mm-hmm. But if you call a pastor to your church, and it doesn't have to be a pastor. It could be anyone responding to a call of God. But if you, in this situation, hypothetically, if you call a pastor to your church and, and just make the church the people of Israel, and things look desolate. Mm. People and keep leaving. Pe- yeah. The pews are not getting full. And things start breaking apart with the building. Then, Even the community around the church uh-huh. seems to be changing. Yeah. And not for the better. Mm. How long is that guy or girl going to last? Not long. Not long. There's a lot of factors. Internal factors, but also leadership you know, decision-making factors. And it must be them. Mm. That's the way we look at it. Because we, we run the church now as businesses are run. And so we don't look for things beyond our understanding. Mm. We don't allow for the spiritual, spiritual components. We just think results or move on. Mm. And I don't know that that's good. You know, if if God could be shown to have caused all of that uh, decline, desolation, I wonder if some some churches would even be willing to throw God out. Talk more about how. What would that look like? Well, I'm just thinking. You know, in in Isaiah's case, he was appointed to this calling. The, the coal was touched to his lips, but the words in his mouth were God's. Mm-hmm. And if the people had any choice about whether to listen to him or not, I think they would have thrown Isaiah out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think they did have a choice. <clears throat> I'm not sure how much of this message was actually really heard and, and comprehended at the well, time. But I mean, just the, the, the way it is set up how it is, you know they're not going to 
listen. Yeah. Because this is chapter six mm-hmm. of a really long book. Right. And it's not like, and Isaiah went out and they heard him mm-hmm. and let's talk for. And they repented yeah. and then the, the God changed his mind and then. It, the, yeah, that would be very short. Yeah. Yeah. That would be Jonah. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Um, but the words that come out of his mouth are, are Yahweh's. So to, to, to turn away the prophet is to turn away the voice of God. Mm-hmm. Now, I think in our modern context, we have to be careful because, um, you know, pr- a prophet, I think history only ha- is the only thing that has the, the ability to verify whether a prophet was um, speaking the word of God. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I highly I'm highly skeptical of anyone who claims to be a prophet. And yet, what we see here and what we see today is that oftentimes the words of prophets are um, frustrating, challenging, causing us to not want to listen, but ultimately are true. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking, for example, of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., uh, whose words were incredibly uh, difficult to hear for those who were in power. Uh, those who were in power in the federal government, local governments, local law enforcement, they did not want to hear what Dr. King had to say. Uh, but history has justified his words, mm-hmm. you know. And, and I just wonder, you know, if we were to be sent our church or our community, you know, a prophet who was in the line of Isaiah and causing people to, to turn away. Whether we would tolerate that person, whether we would tolerate the words coming out of that mouth, whether we would tolerate God's voice in our community if Did, we had the chance to turn him away. Who is we? Is we the church or is we you and I, pastors, clergy? I don't think I can absolve myself of the. I, th- I can. I count myself with the church. I just think that perhaps if that were the case, you know, hypothetically, I feel like pastors would be leading the charge. Mm. That's why I think we need to have some clarification because I think pastors would see the threat, mm. and myself included, mm. and probably be, be chief among the people saying, "Get rid of them. Mm-hmm. We don't need that." Yeah. No, I was thinking about this in terms of, you know, Jesus' ministry. <laughs> like, Jesus was was a preacher and a healer, prophet. you know, prophet. When he spoke in in a group setting on an established day of the week, in his case it was a synagogue, uh, most people did not like what he had to say. Mm-hmm. And so... Most of the narrative of the Gospels is what we find out about Jesus when he's not in the synagogue. Mm-hmm. Because that's where people really saw who he was. That's where the people really came to understand him, was in the work that he was doing. In the healing work, driving out demons, feeding people, sitting down with tax collectors and sinners. That was the work that defined him. When he got up into the pulpit, people tried to throw him off a cliff. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to think of... Where is the separation between the work that we do, 
I'm bringing it back to modern day church using Mm -hmm. your Jesus example. Where is the separation between the work we do to heal, to bring about positive change, things like this, and our typical Sunday mornings? And should there be a difference? Hmm. Not in the response, but in, in, in the message. I don't know if there was or not in Jesus. I, I'm of two minds in that. If you think about How his words, when he does speak in the synagogues and we see the words, he generally, they generally go along with. They're not, they're not antithetical to the work he does. Mm-hmm. Having said that, they are different. Um, and they do certainly elicit a different reaction. And so perhaps the difference is the crowd the difference is the audience. Uh, he's taking work that people need to the people that need it. The healing, the drawing outsiders in, the instructions to love the unlovable, things like that. Whereas when he's getting in, kicked out of synagogues, he's taking a message to people that need it but won't receive it. Mm-hmm. And so perhaps when I think about our modern day version of this, we need to be f- more focused on, um, it, I don't know, it's almost like we have two congregations. We have those we try to reach out to and minister to in the community, and we have our congregation, many of whom are not even part of the communities around our churches. Hmm. And maybe that's, the pro- maybe that's a problem. Maybe that's why people won't hear. Maybe that's why we wonder, am I wasting my time? Is anyone listening to me? Hmm. And... The question, though, is how do we address that? Do we try to find a way to force those people that will listen to us into our churches? Or do we change what church is? Hmm. I don't have the, you, you have less freedom of that than I do. Well, I, I think I, I see some consolation here. I, I feel some hope after reading this passage because it tells me not to sweat it if people don't listen. You know, That's it, good that you're capable of that. Well, I'm not sure that I am. Okay, because I'm not. Okay, but uh, but but I do see. I do agree with you that there there are two congregations. I mean, the word synagogue is a Greek word, which means a coming together of the people, a, a grouping of people, and the word ecclesia, which is where we get the word church, uh, means uh, a group of people who have been called, who are outside or out calling ecclesia, mm-hmm. and. Um, and I think at all times, even today in ministry, we have both groups. You know, we have the people who, who congregate together on Sunday. Um, and, and I'm fine with that term, synagogue. It's a Greek word. It means a grouping of people. Um, that's, that's, to me, my understanding of church. Mm-hmm. Like what the church that we call church today, that's a building of four walls. Um, and then I also am looking for the ecclesia. I'm looking for that group of people who are called, who are outside. Um, and so I guess I, I feel a sense of hope just comparing Isaiah's call story here with Jesus' ministry and seeing that side by side of like, he didn't get a lot of love when he was preaching. Mm-hmm. But people came to understand him in his ministry work. And he was always engaged, but he was always engaged in both. And we see this also in Acts too. You know, like every time that Paul gets thrown out of a synagogue, so Acts also, Acts also, okay, yeah. yeah. Um, 
we see every time Paul gets thrown out of a synagogue, uh, he says, well, then I'm going to go speak to the Gentiles. Yeah. But the next city he goes to, he right goes to straight to the synagogue. Yeah. Because the calling is always both, I think. And, and I'm feeling that in my life, too, that the calling must be both. Uh, we have to be reaching out to our sanctuary, to our congregation, in the pews, and to folks on the outside. And when I graduated seminary, I had this sense that, um, that a lot of people who were going into ministry were using a traditional model in which evangelism is what we do outside the church and preaching is what we do, or preaching and pastoral care is what we do for those who are inside the church. Mm-hmm. But I really felt, and I still feel this way, that actually in, in, in my calling and maybe in, in today's faith landscape, the need is actually the opposite. So that the people who need pastoral care who need someone to come sit with them to remind them that they're not alone. Understand them, yeah. Are the people who are not in the pews on Sunday. Mm-hmm. The people who have not felt comfortable in the pews on Sunday. That's who we need to be reaching out to, providing pastoral care, non-judgmental support, uh, just being community with. And the folks in the pews oftentimes are the ones who need evangelism need to be convinced and convicted of the good news of Jesus Christ, which comes in the form of action, and it comes in the form of actually caring for our neighbors. So I've tried in my ministry to flip those roles, and so when people hear what I have to say from the pulpit, pulpit, sometimes it's a challenging word, Mm -hmm. because I'm trying to evangelize to the folks who are showing up on a Sunday, so that we can be the church that's outside the walls, and not just the synagogue, the gathering of people on Sunday. So I'm often asked this question, what does the church of tomorrow look like? Hmm. I was asked that before the pandemic, but of course. So the world's changed now, and that question just comes up all the time. Hmm. What is the church going to look like? And first I respond with, well, it won't in sentences and a preposition, that's for sure. But then I actually say, you know, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But maybe that's it. Maybe it's the whole church realizing that the model all of long all along should have been what you just laid out that it's not what we do in here well it's both but it's not only about what we do in here and maybe the church of tomorrow looks less like a building and less even like a congregation hmm. and more like communities spread out I always say I don't know what it's going to be but it's going to be more nimble Hmm. But spread out meeting needs coming together when we need to to get strength and instruction yes and doing so regularly but perhaps in the church of tomorrow we won't count heads and say well we have 125 in worship and instead we come together to get back outside hmm. of the walls. I don't know. Yeah, maybe we don't have a metric for for measuring our success as a church outside the walls yet. Do we need to develop one, or do we need to just you know walk by faith and trust that whatever the work that we're doing outside the church is is 
is being reckoned to us as righteousness, even if we uh, can't find a way to account for it in our in our normal um, in our normal metrics. One of the dangerous things and threatening to many people like myself and you who are pastors it shouldn't be, but it it is, is that in a church like that, there will be a new answer to an old question. Because if the church operates like that, when people ask what church do you go to, the answer really should just be yes. Mm. Mm-hmm. That means membership goes by the wayside. That means even even not identity doesn't get lost, but it changes. Mm-hmm. And I think that is threatening to many people. Well, unfortunately, it seems like we're following a God who's not afraid of threatening, (laughs) of being threatening, of appearing threatening, but is also uh, committed to to saving and healing God's people. That is... That is ultimately the goal, I think, in the prophecy of Isaiah. But it it, it takes uh, it it goes over some bumps in the road to get there for sure. All right. So uh, with those challenging thoughts, this has been Pastor Potluck. I'm Court Green, and I'm Peter Constantin. And the wiggling in the chair is Gideon Green. Thank you all for listening, and have a great day.